Spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. And happy Aloha Friday. I'm Yanji Denise. Ryan Kalei Suji has this Veterans Day off today. And of course, we do want to acknowledge and salute our veterans. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We are switching gears. We've been focusing so much on politics for the last few weeks and months, but now we are going to be talking about the economy. Of course, voters did say that pocketbook issues were top of mind particularly affordable housing in Hawaii. So we brought in the best of the best. Paul Brubaker is here from TZ Economics to join us. Paul, thanks for being here this morning. Nice to see you, Yanji. So what the heck is happening in the housing market? Let's start right there. Yeah, well, um, the most immediate thing, uh, um, immediately recent thing, of course, is the rise in mortgage interest rates, interest rates in general with Fed monetary policy moving to tamp down inflation pressures. But mortgage rates from 3% to 7%, kind of a kiss of death for uh, the transaction volumes that had remained relatively resilient uh, after the COVID, uh, the initial sort of COVID shock. Um, the housing market came back and actually was really strong in 2021. In 2021, as people began to embrace remote work, think about where they wanted to live and maybe not commute as much and maybe be able to live further away or even more remotely than that. And that played out mostly in the single family housing segment on Oahu, which, which, saw, which saw a dramatic increase or kind of almost a effervescent or bubblicious increase in prices. Well, condos didn't get as much of that energy. And that's because the, the, the shape shift was towards the suburbs, towards exurbs, uh, at least initially toward, you know, to Zoom towns and uh, away from the urban core. Now there's, a, there's some backwash because when relative prices of urban condos, let's say, don't move as much as single family home prices, it makes them relatively affordable and relative prices are what matter. So we saw the, the condo market come back, but of course the, the, the door was uh, slammed shut by the Fed this spring and now at 7% mortgage rates, we're seeing sales drop. I mean, they're gonna drop 50, 60% from the peaks that we saw in the summer of uh, 2020 and summer and fall of 2021. So it's, it's gonna be a hard, hard beat down for the housing sector and for interest sensitive sectors investment generally uh, as a result of a very, um, uh, uh, vigorous, uh, monetary policy uh, defense and preemption uh, against uh, further inflation. So bottom line on prices, do we expect, you know, nothing gets cheaper in Hawaii. If anything, it just sort of levels off and stays the same. Uh, yeah. Do you think that housing prices could go down here in Hawaii or will they just sort well, of level? No, out? they have. I mean, it, um, let's, I'll focus on Oahu because I know those data better, but the same thing's happening across the islands. And, um, and, and in fact, um, if you're looking at the single family home segment, single family 
uh, median home prices are essentially the same on Oahu, Maui, Kauai, and uh, Kona on the west side of the Big Island. But um, prices have already come down, you know, on average or at the median in the middle of the home price distribution for about six months. I mean, the peak was last spring after seasonal adjustment. And uh, there'll continue to be some compression. Um, in terms of magnitudes, right, we're looking at a pass in the 20 teens of about four and a half percent price appreciation per year, a very stable looking escalator, right? Not a roller coaster. And then post COVID, we had this little surge, um, which took us above the path to let's say 1.2 million for a median single family home price. We would have gotten to a million next year anyway on that path. So the question now is, do we, do we like go revert to that from 1.2? Do we have more of a sideways drift until the path catches up and that's, you know, right now it's looking like a harder correction uh, than a, than a drift off, but 1.1, um, you know, that's, we were going to be there in a couple of years anyway. It's not a, it's not a huge, massive valuation beat down. There's still a shortage of housing. Um, and on the condo side, much less dramatic uh, uh, price movements. In fact, if anything, condo prices were below trend the last several years had finally come back up and are kind of wobbling around a slightly steeper trend, a, a trend with slightly faster appreciation, you know, above four and a half percent, but not six. So what do we expect long-term? We know that as you noted, uh, the Fed is doing this to stave off inflation. Is it working? Yeah. And when will we know if it is yeah. working? Well, we, I mean, uh, it's all, inflation is lower today in Hawaii than it was, um, Six months ago, in fact, I'm going to, if it looks like I'm looking elsewhere, it's because I am. I'm going to just look at <laughs> the data while we're talking about it. But currently, inflation in the U.S. Um, has subsided to 7.7% from a peak at about 8.5% this summer. Um, we never got that high here in Hawaii. So the inflation rate in Hawaii peaked at about 7.5%. So lower than the rate to which U.S. inflation has just subsided as of last month. Um, that was our peak um, eight months ago. And the most recent reading in September was 6.6% um, uh, in Hawaii. And when you break that down even further, let's say, let's call it 6 or 7%, the Fed's goal, of course, is 25 I'm 2%, which for the CPI works out a little higher than that. But let's say there's two, four, six, you know, there's like four percentage points uh, that need to burn off over the next year or two. Well, half of that is coming from post-pandemic supply chain, global supply chain disruptions. You've heard about semiconductor shortages affecting automobiles and, and therefore used cars and so on. And the other big supply factor is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which caused oil prices to jump and uh, disrupted uh, grain markets because Ukraine is a big, uh, one of the world's largest producers of, of um, agricultural commodities, but, but uh, wheat and corn in particular, although it's also a major industrial producer, by the way. Uh, at any rate, the supply part of that is about half. And then the other part, kind of the demand part, they've got their check and they you know, went shopping on Amazon and, and uh, strong cons consumer spending and maybe stronger than was necessary. But of course, we're trying to dig the economy out of a hole. And so it was warranted to go too far than to go too little. 
under the circumstances at the time, but now we're paying for it, literally. Um, those two percentage points, the Fed can burn one of them off, and the other requires that, you know, Putin stand down or, you know, some something, people respond to the higher prices by producing more output or getting the output to the markets that are jammed up uh, more efficiently. And, and those things do tend to work themselves out over time. So I, I'd say we're a year, year and a half away, you know, maybe two years, not that far away from getting back to something that's in a range that that the Fed, ex, uh, the Fed has established as its goal, 2% inflation, which we had all, you know, for a decade. And um, which aligns with people's expectations as well. We're fortunately, expectations that have not um, broken from the from the path that the Fed's laid out. So if we, you know, if it's working, and if it takes a year to two years to sort of burn burn off those segments yeah. that you're talking about, yeah. are we stuck with seven percent interest rates for the next two years? And how does that then? affect no, investments actually, and and the housing market and you know all the other things that we need to borrow money for well take, take a tip from what happens in one day when there's a little bit of surprise in the inflation report right the the, the market's expectation from 8.5 to 8.2 percent u.s nationwide inflation that the the number released yesterday would be 7.9 instead it was 7.7 and the stock market took off because you know any confirmation that inflation is falling, which is expected, is a good thing. But uh, a signal that it's falling faster than people expected was taken as a hugely positive change. Considering you know how you know everybody's so pessimistic, and they're uh, you, you listen to I mean not to get political, but you listen. What was Republicans' number one issue? Inflation, which is already coming down, yo. So you know that is kind of like, you know take a chill pill kind of a situation. And uh, at the at the rate it's coming down, it's going to take a while. I'm just saying that it, it validated people's expectations and and actually went a little farther. As a result of which, a lot of the inflation risk premium that you see embedded in interest rates, like the mortgage rate, will burn off even faster. So let's do the let's do the equilibrium, long-term equilibrium math. Let's say we're on the steady state, cruise control, chill path. Uh, you know of uh, of the century here, and with 2% inflation, 2% GDP growth, productivity growth of about percentage points, so your wages are rising faster than inflation by just enough so that eventually you can afford whatever it is you're waiting to buy. And on that path, the long-term overnight interest rate, the risk-free rate should be about 2.5%, and maybe the risk-free U.S. government security, you know, the 10-year Treasury yield, let's say 3%. I don't know. I'm making it up. Well, then a mortgage rate should be, what, a couple percentage points above that because there's risk in the housing market. So that's 5%. Well, 5% is not 7%. 5% is not 3%. But 3% was the rate to which the Fed pushed things down because there's a freaking pandemic. <laughs> there's no pandemic. We're talking about the cruise control, steady state, escalator of life path that we get back on when the dust settles from Russian invasions and and global biological pandemic uh, subvariant viral evolution. And, uh, you know, which is like a totally fictitious wor world where nothing bad happens, but that's, that's the way to do the math. With the equilibrium rate for the mortgage market was never three. Three was 
buy whatever you can, call up your tutu and get a help on the down payment because you got to get that money while you can because a normal number is five and seven is time to sit back and wait a few months and see how it plays out. Okay. And, uh, and it, want, could go, it could go back to five actually pretty quickly next year. The way by next right year, now. you think? Wow. Okay. By the end of next year? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I would say six is for sure within the next six months. I want to bring in uh, some viewer questions, and we're not going to get too far down this path, but there are several in the comments, so I just want to give you an opportunity to oh, address okay. this. Uh, and it and, and it does tie into the housing market. Heidi's saying, yeah. Aloha, what impact will reductions of illegal rentals have on housing prices? Ingrid Peterson's. <laughs> and I want to bring in Ingrid's and then let you respond to both. Ingrid Peterson, who says she's your Stanford classmate, says you strongly supported vacation rentals in the Start Advertiser article because it adds to tourism income. Yet you must know that many tourists renting vacation rentals spend less than hotel tourists. And as a Kailua boy calling you out there for you, <laughs> you must be aware of the damage from over tourism and short term rentals harming residential neighborhoods and taking long term rentals off the market. Please comment. So. Let's talk about both of those things. Yeah, well, let's you know, sort the of start at the end. Please go ahead, yes. You know, let's start at the end and unpack because, okay, let's talk about Kailua. I don't know where Ingrid lives, but, you know, um, I don't, what, what is this? When I went there, it was, uh, now they're called the Cardinal, which is like the color. <laughs> I don't even, we went through that whole thing. I voted for the Stanford Thunder Turkeys, by the way, or whatever. <laughs> there was a referendum. And, uh, Actually, I think I voted for the Stanford robber barons. But here, where are, where are, were, I don't know. I haven't looked at the data for three years. But three years ago, where were, in May 2019, where were the vacation rentals in Kailua located? Makai or Malka? Answer, Makai. So where is there affordable housing in the Makai part of Kailua? There isn't any, right? So you're not displacing any affordable housing right the peasants us guys we live malka so right off the top the whole idea of short-term rentals displacing but wait you can build housing you know what i mean even if you're displacing rich people from beachfront you know they're going to live on dune circle or something or i i get it comes back it's back in the neighborhoods in coconut grove you can build housing, but no, the Kailua Neighborhood Board said, no, but are we going to build housing, right? Unanimous vote against affordable housing next to Andy Drive-In or whatever it is now. And uh, I, so that's Kailua. That's how Kailua rolls, right? You're not going to build any housing, affordable, or any other kind of housing. So, well, that's that doesn't have anything to do with tourism, right? And if a, this thing about traffic and all this other stuff, right? If it's a long-term rental, what? The guy in normal car. Of course he has a car. So there's a tourist there with a rental car or there's a local guy in a long-term rental with a pickup truck. What's a diff, right? I look around at my neighborhood where everything's ADUs and whatever. It's all pickup trucks on the, on the street. We don't have any tourists up here because it's where the peasants live. But I'm just saying you can build housing. So the whole idea that you need to chase people out of the neighborhood because they come from somewhere else or they don't, you know, live there for as long as you, that's just like, I mean, when you go to Paris, do you go stay in a ghetto where all the hotels are located? No. Vienna? Anywhere? When you go to Sicily, do you stay in a, I mean, has anybody traveled anywhere 
when you go skiing in the Alps, do you stay in the hotel ghetto that they call Waikiki? No, you stay in a Gustzimmer or something, or a Jugendherberger, or you know, or pension or something. So, <laughs> well, but what about this idea, though? I mean, the mayor's really made this the you know a big yeah. part of his administration to say you know we're cracking down on illegal vac vacation rentals, and by doing so, we will create yeah. affordable housing that already exists. We don't have to build new housing. We're just going to use the housing we already have and shift the tourists to the hotels to then ease yeah. up some affordability. Is that not the yeah, case? You're gonna let's be clear what he's saying and what the city council is saying with his blessing. We are going to use exclusionary zoning to segregate people who aren't from here to live in ghettos that we call resorts. Three of them, Waikiki, Koalina, and Turtle Bay. That's the whole list. So, I mean, that's exactly what he's doing. Housing segregation, using exclusionary zoning. That's just tribalism. That, I mean, that's how bigotry is put into effect in housing policy. So my argument is surely there's a way to integrate tourism into the, spatially into the economy more broadly than to hold it captive to a small number of global lodging corporations, right? Who use protectionism to um, keep their oligopoly rents um, um, robust. And surely there's a way to manage whatever the spillovers that people are actually concerned about, whether they involve congestion or resource degradation or cultural dilution. But wait, those are all spillovers that occur even without the tourists, right? The bucket with the pickup truck who's in a long-term rental is still commuting to work. So I, I don't I don't see that we're even solving the problems that people are actually concerned about. That's that's the main issue, which are oh. the spillovers, congestion, resource degradation, cultural erosion or authenticity. And you don't you don't have to ban people who don't look like you and speak a different language and come from somewhere else from your neighborhood to get oh, well. that. I want to ask you about the tourism market while we're on the subject of tourism. We know that we've relied heavily as a state on the continental U.S. Uh, tourist, you know, those visitors yeah. uh, in the absence of the Asian market. Um, yeah. Japan's not roaring back right now. You know, the carriers have said that those planes are not full. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the high value of the dollar versus the yen yeah. and our own inflation issues here at home that just make it so expensive for Japanese visitors to come here. So if there is... Okay, but they... Okay, the Wait, whoa, 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 stop. The inflation <laughs> is everywhere. It's, right. it's only 7% in Japan. So every place on the planet is having the same inflationary problem. That's, that's, not, that's not actually a thing. That's not an issue. Okay. So it's so, the same inflation. Yeah. So tell us what you expect from the Japanese market. Right. Uh, that's, that's page one. And then page two is if we do have a recession on the continent or, or you know, around, around the country, we're included mm -hmm. in that. Um, yeah. what happens to those visitors? Do they still come? And, and, you know, what happens to our tourism dollars? Well, so what's happened with, you have to think of there, there's an information asymmetry that's present because of the pandemic, right? You're not sure how things are in another country. They aren't sure here, we aren't, right? We have Ron DeSantis, right? So we have a, a million Americans died, a million Japanese didn't die from COVID. 
So you can understand why people from other places where not that many people died from COVID would be wondering about going to a country where people don't wear masks, they don't care when their fellow countrymen die. And that's kind of the way the U.S. rolls, right? And vice versa, we don't know what it's like in those places. And then they have some many, like Japan, have more had more rigid non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as two-week quarantine when you get to when you you know upon arrival or ten day or whatever it is. But um, so it's it's only been a month or so since the quarantine has been lifted, um, which applies to anybody arriving, and to, including a returning Japanese. A traveler. So all of those things have combined to make international travel travel um, less attractive for the majority of people for whom resolving the information on certain keys is more costly than it's worth it. When the option of just staying within your own country is available, right? You, well, let's just go to Hawaii because we know that's in the U.S. and you know, and and so it, we've both benefited from th that peculiar attribute of the of the pandemic to endemic transition of covid but we also have these economic forces at work the inflation that we just uh, mentioned which is high everywhere not as high in some places it's higher in the uk than it is in the us but it it's yielded a monetary policy response that's been the most aggressive in the US. And so because our interest rates are higher, that makes our currency stronger, relatively speaking. And at 150 yen per dollar, this is the most expensive place on the planet for a Japanese individual to in, in which to invest or to spend, uh, uh, you know, to engage in leisure travel or get married or whatever Japanese do when they come to Hawaii. And so even though things are opening up, you know, the, our, our big draw right now is we're the most expensive place on the planet for you to go. Come on down. <laughs> and, and so those things are all going to have to resolve themselves. I mean, the yen hasn't been this high. It's, it's as high as it's been in 35 years. It does. It hasn't been, uh, I'm sorry. The, the, the yen dollar exchange rate has been decided. The dollar has been more expensive, has, hasn't been this much more expensive uh, for a Japanese than uh, in 35 years, something like that. I mean, you have to go back to the 80s, basically, to find a time. So, so everything we've enjoyed for the last 30 years, 35 years, has been, well, since 1986, has been a function of a relatively weak dollar and a relatively strong yen that now have um, reversed positions. So it'll be, it's an uphill climb for Hawaii as a destination for two reasons. One is people still sort of getting out of that, what's the situation in terms of health, uh, public health and safety uh, concerns. And then, you know, how much it's gonna cost. At, at um, 80 or 90 yen per dollar, Japanese spend $300 a day in Hawaii. At 140, 150 yen per dollar, they spend $200 a day in Hawaii, right? They, they have the same amount of yen to spend, but it just doesn't translate in dog years to $300, it translates to $200. But the hotel room rate didn't change. In fact, the hotel room rate went up. Mm -hmm. So now, even if they do come, an even larger portion of what they have to spend is on fixed costs, the cost of lodging, and, and they can't get a vacation rental in Kailua. And so, you know, they take the bus to Kailua, the, like the bus. Bus, because the tour buses still aren't coming 
Kailua. And, um, you know, that's how it's going to, we're, we're going to roll through this winter with a, a relatively light participation from these formerly important markets uh, from which we're trying to retrieve travelers and no doubt with continued support from the mainland traveler, which is enjoying both the um, legacy of uh, income support, pandemic relief and, and fiscal stimuli uh, or savings that were built up or wealth that was accumulated in what was a kind of an extraordinary period that, that still consumption in America is still very strong. Uh, consumption of travel and leisure services has been slow to climb out of the trough, but it has, uh, as you point out, it has successfully taken Hawaii back to about 90% of its you know, prior tourism benchmark uh, performance solely on the basis of mainland travelers who, by the way, don't spend as much in shopping and, and that kind of thing, but they spend a longer time. So the lodging guys are loving it, right? They're 10 days versus six days. But if we experience if we experience a recession, how do you expect that to then impact that market, given that we've now really gone to that trough as opposed to the, yeah, the global I mean, one that we were in? wouldn't help. Put it this way, we mounted our tourism recovery this year. In the last 12 months, we overcame the Delta variant, the Omicron, Omicron variant, BA.2 and BA.5 this summer, all of which had, all of which compressed travel volume on every, every subvariant, every variant and subvariant wave has compressed travel to some degree or another. But we managed to get tourism to climb out um, in the, uh, I'll say the post-vaccine period, right? If you go back to winter, spring of, of 2021, but at least the last 12 to let's say um, 15 months, we mounted that in the presence of a U.S. national economy that had a strong labor market, but in which GDP declined for two consecutive quarters in the first half of this year, right? U.S. real GDP declined between December and June of this year. And that wasn't a recession. So what kind of recession is it going to be now where the unemployment rate is still, I don't know, 4% or something like that? It's not that high. The main people losing jobs right now are people at Facebook and people at Twitter, and they kind of, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but some of those companies deserve to be in crypt the crypto space and whatnot. And, and you know, it's time for a shakeout, and uh, where, you know, hubris and 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 mismanagement and and overblown aspirations have been the dominant drivers of. Uh, corporate and, and employment growth. And now people are sort of aligning and competitive pressure. I mean, fake book and Instagram are getting beaten up by TikTok. So there, <laughs> there's competition. We are almost out of time. The time flies when we talk with you. It I always know, does. I love having you on, but yeah. I want to ask you, um, you know, just before we go, your sort of outlook into the next year, where you're going to have a new governor sworn in on the 5th. And of yeah. course, the legislature will be back in session. Uh, they ended the last the last session with, you know, spending quite a bit of money that they didn't expect to have. Um, what are your what's yeah. your sort of prediction or, or what's your forecast or outlook uh, for the coming year? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not actually that positive about Hawaii, but it has nothing to do with the recession, which may or may not happen. By the way, we we may actually be going through a recession a year or two, where some things, right, two things are working for every 
one thing's not working for every two things that are. And it's going to feel like, like the labor market's going to be tight for a variety of reasons, demographic reasons. It's still a real, a real problem to get uh, uh, daycare, you know, quality daycare, um, and a, a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and uh, the remote work thing is still playing out and people are trying to sort that out, right? Elon Musk has told everybody to go back to the office. And so he's going to have thousands of people quit in addition to thousands of people he because, right, they can go work remotely for a bunch of other better firms in this economy. So all of this kind of post, I hate to say post-pandemic, because the, the BQs are upon us and they're going to affect us this, this winter. But there's a, a very sort of turbulent, choppy uh, economic landscape out there uh, to navigate through. And Hawaii had its own idiosyncratic problems coming into this. Hawaii GDP is probably 15% below where we would have been had we stayed on track in the 20 teens, but we went off track in the about 2017. We kind of veered off into a black hole and then to the pandemic hit. And what I'm concerned about is you mentioned the money. I see the money and they're, they're putting speed humps out here for no apparent reason. Probably they put a speed pump, a speed hump one block from a pedestrian overpass to our elementary school. What's the point? So, too right it's kind of like too much money not enough good ideas and um i'm concerned right digging holes and filling them back in creates employment but it's not an intelligent thing to do so my concern is that we're not really fixing you know the, our risk is the risk in hawaii is that we're not going to really solve the problems we're going to do sort of sideshow stuff like the problem of not building enough housing and i and, and to go back i i i need to make clear People have legitimate concerns about what happens when there's inadequate housing stock and additional sources of demand that show up that weren't there before. But hosting apps and smartphones aren't going away. And the democratization of the lodging industry enabled by hosting apps is not going to go away. And so, and remote workers, right? The new tourist is going to be a remote worker who's going to come stay for a few weeks or a few months. Now, are you going to deny a regional economy the ability to participate in that landscape of the economic future? I mean, that's a real problem for Hawaii, given that you can't drive to the next county to begin with. So in a, in a lot of ways that the rest of the economy on the mainland is benefiting from the spatial reallocation of the population where because the smart kids can work remotely. And the people in occupations that require higher educational attainment and therefore have higher compensation because they're more productive, they're the ones that are able to redeploy themselves spatially relative to the traditional workplace and continue to be productive. And Hawaii's not grappling with these kinds of issues. We, we sort of had the stop sign up, say, get the hell out. You know, I call them illegal. I, I call them undocumented vacation rentals seeking a pathway to citizenship. And it's <laughs> sort of a, right? It's the instinct to prohibition is hanging up Hawaii when we ought to be working through the solutions to get win-win outcomes. So there are so many comments. I think we have to invite you back um, maybe next month to just talk about this vacation rental issue because it is. Well, I, I'll have to study up on it because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm winging it at this point. But I have spent a lot of time researching over tourism. So 
go go to the UHERA website. You can read some of the things that uh, my colleagues and I have been thinking about this. And I, th there's another path um, to, um, you know, there's there are better ways, smarter ways uh, to manage the issues. And I hope we can get there. Okay, my well, concern I is that we won't. We are out of time, so I'm going to let you go, but I, uh, I'm i going to email you separately. Everyone who's writing in the comments, don't worry. We're going to invite Paul back for a deep dive on this housing issue to talk send, specifically about that. Send me the comments, and I'll, I'll write you something <laughs> back, Yunji, so that, no, seriously, and then I we will. can like make dialogue like that. I will. That That's exactly what this show is intended to do. Paul Brubaker from TZ Economics, thank you so much for being here this morning. I appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure. Good fun. Thank you, Yunji. <laughs> And thank you to all of you who are writing in the comments and sending in your messages to Paul. We know that a lot of you really want to do a deep dive, it sounds like, just based on what everybody's writing about, uh, you know, what's happening with affordable rental, affordable housing and this conversation and the pathway that the Blanchiardi administration and much of the city council is taking toward enforcement, thinking that by shutting down that part of the market, it will free up more uh, affordable housing rentals. Uh, you know, you heard Paul Brubaker there sort of pushing back on that, saying, uh, you know, a car in the neighborhood is still a car, whether it's a rental car or, uh, you know, a lift truck from somebody who lives there. And so the impacts that he's that there that a lot of you folks are expressing in the comments that you're concerned about uh, would still exist, whether there are affordable, uh, whether there are legal vacation rentals there or legal vacation rentals or, you know, Kama'aina in those homes or not. So uh, a lot to unpack there. And we know there's a lot of passion on this. We appreciate Paul's comments just about the wider economy. You heard him talking there about, you know, the pricing. And if you missed any part of our conversation, go back and watch it after we're done with the live stream. Or, of course, you can catch this as a podcast. It's so interesting to hear his take on the housing market prices and his expectation about interest rates uh, not staying at 7% for all that long, uh, which is good news for anybody looking to buy a home. Uh, we always have a lot to talk to him about, and we will definitely have him on again soon. On Monday, we are going to be having our last conversation with Governor David Ige while he is in that seat. Of course, uh, the viewers, you know, they have spoken. Uh, no, not the viewers, sorry, the voters have spoken. And uh, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green will will be taking over the fifth floor with Sylvia Luke. But before, of course, he does, uh, the governor will be in that seat for another few weeks. And we will have our conversation with David Ego right here on Monday at 1030. To get some of his reflections on the last eight years and find out what he plans to do next. We do hope you join Ryan and I then. Until then, happy Veterans Day. Mahalo again to all servicemen and women. And we will see you right back here on Monday. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Longstrugs.